0: have Pastor Kaner come and speak to us. Thank you for that. get all my stuff out of the way here. Yes. The text that we have in front of us this morning is so rich that it needs a three-concept introduction, okay? Three different kind of categories to hang a few thoughts as you as we move through the message, alrighty? The first thought is this: that sometimes it's hard to know what constitutes an advantage and what constitutes a disadvantage. Okay? Imagine being spoken to in sing-songy English by a Chinese person, okay? Once there was a wise Chinese man. One day, horse escape. Neighbors gather. Oh, this bad, this bad. Wise Chinese man say, how you know this bad. Next day, Son, trying to break horse, fall off, break leg. Neighbors gather. Oh, this bad, this bad. Wise Chinese man say, how you know this bad? Sometime later, army come through area, constricting all able-bodied men. Son have broken leg. No go. Neighbors gather. Oh, this good, this good. Wise Chinese man say, How you know. How you know. How you know. How you know. What constitutes an advantage and what constitutes a disadvantage? Sometimes it's hard to know. Concept number two. Disappointments can be his appointments. Disappointments can be his appointments. Concept number two. Concept number three. Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe tells audiences that all believers are enrolled in the school of faith from the moment of salvation. Tuition is uh, the same for everybody. No scholarships. No freebies, no bargains, same rate for everybody. Abraham is dean of the faculty in this school of faith, and the rest of the instructors are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. In the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 16, as was read, David will graduate from music school and writing school and sling school and he'll be off by himself in a hidden place hidden place in our first session it was suggested that god constructs our attitudes he's in the process of building us and making us like himself the last session closed with david being anointed he was uh, he was anointed to be king and god stated what was going to happen he uh, he had it out there he's going to be the king you know being an astronaut would be great wouldn't it I mean they had they had sponsorship offers before they ever went in space. I mean they were just, you know, photo ops, dinners, you know, wanted come and speak, you know. Being an astronaut would really be cool. Becoming an astronaut is another matter. In John Glenn's biography, he said that the people sending him into space said, "We are sending you where we've never been where no man has ever been. And they felt they had to subject Mr. Glenn and his fellow astronauts to every conceivable test so that they would know how the body would react, how they would react, how the whole, the endurance, I mean, everything they could think of, everything they could dream up. Almost sadistically so, as far as Mr. Glenn indicated from his perspective. Um being an astronaut that's cool becoming an astronaut not the marines the few the brave the proud being a marine with great all those brass buttons that sharp outfit man they look good don't they i mean those guys look like a bunch of handsome hunks they're good looking guys you know ah but becoming a marine eh, not so interesting being king ooh, yeah that's nice everybody gotta do what i say becoming king. The passage we're working with this morning is becoming king. It's going to be horrendous. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be stressful. Verses 1 to 13 illustrate that God's sovereign purpose would not be missed for David. That's the verse that's the section for the Calvinists. Then we come to then we come to 14 to 23 and that's the section for the Arminians, you know. He's going to have to work, 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 to enter into the plan that God has for him. There's a very interesting verse, I believe it's in uh, in First Timothy chapter two, verse 10, at least I sure hope it is. Let's see here. First Timothy chapter two, verse 10 says. Mm, that's not it. That's not it. Let's see. Let's try Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, which says, I endure all things for the elect's sake. You see that? You see that represents the balance of the Calvin and the Arminian. So we have a Calminian passage in front of us here. I endure all things, that's the becoming king, that's becoming an astronaut, that's becoming a marine, for the elect's sake. There was an elect's sake, but there was a means to reach the elect's sake. Human effort. Calminian passage, okay? All right. <clears throat> this passage basically records how the country youth becomes, comes to the big city, how the country youth becomes gets to meet the uh, Saul and Abner and the other high leaders of the country. Uh, And uh, this is his coming out passage, you see. Every young lady wonders, will there be a godly man that will want me to be his wife? Every Bible school student wonders, is there a church that will want me? I'm I'm a nobody. I don't know anything. I'm just, you know, I'm 22, 24. I don't, you know, make my way in the world and preach to people that are 45 and 50 and 60. Man, who's going to want me? We all have felt that sense of insecurity. We've all felt that sense of hoping the door of opportunity would open for us. We know what that's like. Uh, Verse 14 says that, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. You see it there in chapter 16, verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. He would remain the king of Israel for another approximately 14 years. But he's losing, he's lost the power, the poise, the confidence to become a, uh, a, a good king. Think with me for a moment about the time factor. The time factor. First Samuel 16, 1 to 13 would have taken place in a matter of hours. Just a matter of hours. I mean, he's got to, tra- Samuel's got to travel from Ramah to Bethlehem and back to Ramah. What a day! A half a day, three quarters of a day. Short period of time. We've probably got as much as four years to complete the chapter from verse fourteen to verse twenty-three. We know that because Saul, Saul's servants would not have immediately diagnosed Saul's malady as uh, to be helped by music therapy. It wouldn't. they wouldn't have. It wouldn't have diagnosis wouldn't have taken place right away, nor would it have been determined that music therapy would help. And David is out in the countryside building a reputation so that it come to the attention of Saul's servants. And then in verses 21 and 22, there are three indefinite phrases where there's, there's a lot of time that could be put in each phrase, you see? So probably four years is not an unusual amount of time for this to take place. God is not in a hurry to launch us in a national prominence. David will need a perfect heart as we come to chapter 17 as he tackles Goliath. So um, uh, that's that's part of the thinking here. David's status was raised a great deal when he was anointed among his brethren. That became, incidentally, a family secret because no one would be safe if Saul came. I was aware that there was a king in their midst. You see. This would become a family secret that had to be kept for their safety. And David's status just soared. All of a sudden, he was standing there with the anointing oil running over his body. He was going to be the future king. So what did God do? God sent him back to the sheep. Humbles him by sending him back to the sheep. Don't let anybody convince you the Christian life is always up. How many of you read Daily Bread? Does the name Herbert Vanderluck mean anything to you? Yes, Herb Vanderluck. He, for years, he wrote many, many articles. I heard him say as he retired one day, uh, Trinity Baptist in Grand Rapids, he said, you know, I, I had a wonderful ministry, and then it kind of got smaller, and then it got bigger, again, and then it got smaller. And he just there was just a grace and humility in his life as he said, what I'm saying is the Christian life is not always up. It's not always better and better and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know? It doesn't work that way. God doesn't always do that. So, David is sent back to the sheep, and uh, he's returned to balance off his newly acquired status. We are all lifelong learners, and David is in school. In fact, the title of the message this morning is Finishing School. Finishing School. Yeah, okay, good. It's here. Thank you. You're being ahead of me, Steve. Thank you. Um, finishing School. We're all lifelong learners, God's preparing us. And we will have the same teachers that David had. Same teachers. Okay, what were the teachers he had? Well, let's start with Dr. Discipline. Dr. Discipline. Um, He's back with a sheep. How does he respond? He's sent home. What what, what, what reaction does he have? He's a high-caliber young man. He's a sharp guy. Um these are the hidden years for David. These four years are the are hidden, more hidden years. Wise is the person that uses the hidden years, the the student years, to prepare themselves and to, to be ready for their future. Uh, he, he's left alone and he influences the future by preparing for it. So he prepares for it in three ways. Number one, music. Music. We would be so much poorer off if David had had a big, huge pity party. Instead, he gave himself over to writing musical songs, musical poems, like the 23rd Psalm. He, he writes from the perspective of a sheep. He had the capacity, you see, to, uh, to look at his own, kind of sit on his own shoulder and look down a spiritual microscope of his own soul and capture in words what God's God's perspective and what he was doing, what he was saying. And he set these, to, these, set these poems to, to music. And uh, so music was a powerful thing. He invented musical instruments. And this would have been the logical time for him to have had the time. He's got nothing but time. And uh, this would have been the logical time for him to create those musical instruments. Um, he disciplined this skill. And now let me just uh, just consider that I've grabbed this microphone, I've jumped up on that chair right there, and I've screamed, okay? Now I'm going to whisper instead, so I don't hurt your ears, but I want to make a very important point. We never know what God is going to use to carry us into that next thing that he has planned for us. God will use the music of David to carry him into the highest courts of the land. His music would soothe the king and thereby the door of opportunity open for him to move into the highest circles of the land. Do you enjoy mechanics? Man, be a great mechanic. Do you enjoy cooking? Cook will come. (laughs) Um, Like like Dan. Great dinner. So many of you were so gracious each this week to us. Um, Whatever you enjoy, God can use that skill. It can become a bridge into somebody's life. Electronics. God can use electronics. God needs computer people on the mission field. Whatever you are interested in, whatever you like, can become a bridge into the hearts and minds of people. So David developed his music. Number two, he developed his writing. He developed his writing. He, as I say, he had the ability to look down this into his soul, like down, down in a microscope and see all that was there and capture it from God's perspective. Um, it's likely that this was the time when, when uh, this, his writing style w- was developed and, uh, I want to challenge you. You, 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 you do write, don't you? you? You do write. We have written two books. One's named David and one's named Daniel. You have written books. You are writing books. You are capturing your spiritual experience on paper. Because right now the grandkids are not asking questions. And they won't be asking questions till 10 after ten years after you're gone. You, you do right, don't you? Let this be written. Psalms 102, verse 18. Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. Let this be written, that a future generation, for a future generation, that a people not yet created, not yet conceived, two generations away, three generations away, four generations away, may praise the Lord. You, you do right, don't you? You do have a story of God's grace in your life, and I encourage you to capture it on paper. It's God's way of saying, Lord, I'm paying attention. I'm listening to what you're doing in my life. I'm capturing it on paper so that it can influence family members 100 years from now. You do right, don't you? I hope that you do. There's great power in what's written. Um, the living word. The written word was with the Jewish people for millennia and then for a long time, millennia. And then we had the living word for 30 years, 33 years. And then we went back to the written word. You know, when God when God got ready to communicate with humanity, he didn't send a cassette tape. He didn't send a... Uh, a uh, Whatever. An email. He gave us a book. Um, and uh, so you, uh, I, I hope that you do right. And then thirdly, thirdly, he, is, uh, he develops his fighting skill. Now certainly the Spirit of God guided the stone in the pouch in David's sling. But part of the reason, humanly speaking, I'm convinced he was willing to step out and tackle Goliath is that he had spent hours hitting targets no bigger than Goliath's forehead. He had nothing to do except his music and, as I say, his writing and so forth, but lots of hours to use that sling and practice and practice and practice and practice and practice, and practice some more. <clears throat> he uh, he developed his fighting skill. Philistine raids were common. His sling would be valuable. Well, one last thought before i move on to court he's alone in the wilderness with his sheep the the older brothers didn't want to be a sheep herder they you know they went to the anointing david stayed with the sheep he's out in the country with a job that nobody wants perfect perfect opportunity for him to be self-pitying and poor me and this is terrible and and, you know, if a psychologist had gotten a hold of him, he'd have said, yeah, you need to you need to go where the bright lights and freeway traffic is and have fun. You need to, you know, this is terrible. You need to get out of here, you know. You need to go someplace. Folks, there are some wonderful things that come out of the country. Wonderful things can come out of the country. It used to be that, that uh, students who were schooled at home, homeschooling, were kind of put down by universities. But they have discovered that students who went through homeschooling Tend to be among the sharpest students they have. There, there can be some great things come out of humble beginnings. There can be some great things come out of the country. And it would be easy to look at the city idiots and think, oh, it's all there. All the excitement is there, you know? Oh, God is at work in the country too. Well, He's at work in the city, but He's also at work in the country. And we ought to be grateful for the country. Well, He's called to court. You see it there in the verse, that uh, people become aware, uh, servants of Saul become aware of his abilities, and they report his skills to uh, King Saul. And so we read there that, uh, um, find uh, verse 17, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. David said to Saul, let uh, no one, oops, skip a the page there. One of the servants said, I've seen the son of Jesse, Bethlehem. So David comes to court. He meets the important people of the world, important people of the Islamic world, or of the the Islamic world, the Arab world, the Christian world. I'm going to get it right eventually. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Self-control and discipline had been David's allies. He was well-liked, magnetic, handsome. Doesn't hurt to be handsome. And uh, I wouldn't know, but it doesn't hurt. Um, these spiritual qualities lifted him. Truly a man's gift make room for him as he's, he's been through finishing school and now he's, he's come. God has a unique course marked out for every person. However, you'll have to work at it and work at it and work at it to enter into that course. The Christian young lady will find her Mr. Terrific. The Bible school student will find a church that wants him to be the pastor. The fifth grade teacher will find that he or she has the energy to work with her children, and the business student pressures will not overwhelm the Christian man who looks to the Lord. Uh, As we work at it, God can can help us a great deal. Well, David didn't figure on getting into the court via his harp, but he rode his harp into court. Dr. Discipline gave David quite a ride. Professor number two. Mr. Disappointment, Mr. Disappointment. Chapter 17, verse 1. David has become a resident of the court. He is not only the court minstrel, but he's now the king's armor-bearer. But neither need kept him at court as the Philistines were gathered up for war. Once the Philistines were gathered up for war, Saul didn't have time to be melancholy. He had to He had to get to work. He, uh, he had to... Get his army going there and be ready to go. You see that in chapter seventeen, beginning to come along there. The date is approximately one thousand twenty-one BC. David's about nineteen years of age. He's been at court uh, some time, and he's been promoted to be armor bearer, as I say. And you'd think he'd be there. That was his permanent home. But when uh, when the uh, when the, the troops rallied, guess where he was? He was back with the sheep. Back with the sheep. The big moment came and his brothers got to march off with a flash and the splash and the excitement of a military campaign. He went back to the sheep. From promoted uh, nobody promoted status up back to the sheep status down, brought to court, status way up. Chapter 17, verse 1, status way down again. Kinda up and down, like your life and my life. Not unusual for that to be the case. I think he was very disappointed. He wants to be accepted by his brothers he wants to be part of one of the guys he wants to be there he wants to partake of this thing and and uh, you know he's just he's just not it must have been very disappointing for him when word reached David to return home his hopes faded. I wonder if Eliab felt superior oh little Davy yeah' he's, he's a musician and he's with the sheep yeah 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 that's he, that's that's his speed yeah he's yeah he's not here. Not here I wonder if he felt like well i'm I'm a fighter I'm a fighter yeah, he's yeah he kind of babysits a sheep I'm a, I one of Saul's men and I say again, how you know what constitutes an advantage because now i'm I'm shouting again because God has more for David with the sheep than he has for Eliab at the front. And David has to be sent to be back with the sheep to experience what God has for him. It's hard to say what constitutes an advantage in life. Not so obvious. God has bigger plans for him. Bigger plans for him. You may look at some who seem to be in the center of the social world. Others seem to have more influence, be more, have more, are more. It's hard to say what constitutes an advantage. I remember a young couple in high school, they got married right out of a month or two out of graduation, high school, not all that uncommon in some places, but there in Southern California where I grew up, that was just unheard of. And they burned out, they, they, they peaked too early, they had too much success, they were the, they were the very center of attention. But they didn't have the the maturity to handle the intoxication of being the center of attention. Some people peak too early in life. Let's not be envious of others who seem to have more or are more or do more. Let's be trusting the Lord. It's hard to say what constitutes an advantage in life. Isaac Newton when he was four years of age, his father died, his mother remarried, and the husband, that stepdad, had one requirement. He did not want little Isaac around. So he lived at his aunt's house half a mile away. His mother saw him regularly, but he didn't live with his mother. And there was a wound in his life. But when that stepdad died, Isaac Newton's mother inherited that estate. And then when she died... He inherited that estate, enabling him to be a retired gentleman scholar. Without that money, he might not have been that. He worked for the Mint, but he also had that nest egg that helped him. So what looked like a terrible wound, and it was, was turned to be an advantage. It's hard to say sometimes what constitutes an advantage. Sin has wired us all to think and assume that others are more important to God. Sin sin has either made us arrogant and boastful and dominant, or it's made us insecure and uh, questioning whether God loves us as much as he loves somebody else, or um, feeling that others are blessed more, etc., have more, are more, etc. Have more fun, or smarter, and God loves them more. When uh, when things get difficult, we begin to we begin to question. What if I what if I taken that other job, married that other person, lived in another city? When the pressure mounts, we tend to examine these things and and uh, 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 you know focus on those things. But uh, David did not. He trusted the Lord. Very important to do that. It seems that the Lord is not interested in now for David. He's not interested in now for us either. He'll uh, he'll put focus on development of our character. So let's see, Mr. Mr. Discipline, Dr. Discipline and Mr. Disappointment. David's third professor, I believe is Mr. Distressful Responsibility. Mr. Distressful Responsibility. In God's Hidden Valley Finishing School. David was to meet some very distressing responsibility. He was given a course in the power of the Holy Spirit, and Dan was probably at the 504 level, college level, graduate level course in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to go up the Elah Valley before long, the Oak Valley, and he has to have a perfect heart of humility. If he kills Goliath and then he strikes out to pride, he becomes neutralized. God is preparing this man. God is preparing you and me. Um, now, skip ahead to chapter 17, verse 34. Chapter 17, verse 34. It reports that David is uh, alone with his sheep Now it's reported later, but it happens earlier. David later is telling King Saul, and he uses this event in 34 to 37 to explain to the king why he should be allowed the opportunity of facing Goliath. But it happens back here, when David's alone with the sheep before he ever walks up to the valley, Oak Oak Valley, and sees Goliath for the first time. It's recorded there that a lion darts off the field, out of the field, somewhere out of the forest or something, begins to ravage David's sheep. And so David, he's already made up his mind, he's going to be a good shepherd. He tears after the animal. And uh, this is a very distressing responsibility to have a lion come after your sheep. I mean, Lord, what have I done? Why me? Why this? Why now? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He tears after the lion and Somehow God lets the simple weaponry that he's got have enormous effect and praise him, the lion lies dead at his feet. David needs to say to himself, how did I do that? How did I do that? I didn't do that. God did that. The Holy Spirit did that. I've received some interesting things about the Holy Spirit lately. Um, I wish I were more perceptive. I really do. We, we, you know, we can be so unaware. I can be so unaware. In the course of moving from the Detroit area to the Holland area, um, a man said to me, you know, you, you've been such a good pastor to me. I thought, I haven't pastored you. I've been your friend. I, I haven't, I haven't, God pastored you. And I realized later, the Holy Spirit pastored him. I didn't pastor him, you know? They gave me a little plaque that says, keep reading the book. Keep reading the book. And they said, well, you said that to us again and again and again. I don't remember saying it even once. What's the point? The point is, maybe I said it once, maybe I said it twice, I don't remember. But the Spirit of God jacked that thing up on steroids and put it in their hearts. Your words are powerful to people, and God uses you. And things that you forgot about, or didn't didn't remember, didn't you know? It just you know it wasn't impressive to you. The Lord uses to enrich, to encourage, to nourish. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. He just takes what you did, and your attitude might be hey, anybody could have done that. I have a friend who's been told he has a gift of prayer. He doesn't think so. He think anybody can do that. You know. I think that's how God keeps gifted people from getting arrogant. Anybody can do that, you know? So the Holy Spirit, David has got to say to himself after this lion's lying dead there on the, on, the, on, the, on the grass, you know, the Holy Spirit empowered me to do that. I didn't do it, God did it. He's not, nothing to be proud about. Sometime later, a bear comes and David kills the bear. Now, man. This is a prime moment. I mean, let's see: skin the bear, yeah. Take it into town, yeah. Where's Power Magazine? Let's do a book. Do I hear a movie in the on the horizon? Lion Tamer. Be a good title, Lion Tamer, for my first book. Is that what he does? He doesn't apparently say anything about it. Until he uses it as logic to prompt Saul to let him face Goliath, that's where this inset of thirty-four to thirty-seven takes place. He is—he's uh, been—he's gotten this—he's gotten this, uh, he's gotten this uh, uh, enormous uh, empowerment from the Lord, but it was a stressful service. So we got Dr. Discipline, Mr. Mr. Disappointment, and now we got Mr. Distressful Service. What about Mr. Rejection? I mention these because you'll have the same teachers that David had. I will have the same teachers that David had. You relate to some of these things some of this rejection, some of this distressful service, some of this disappointment, some of this Dr. Discipline? Mr. Rejection, we see him in verse 29. Of chapter 17 David comes to camp he sees Goliath Goliath strolls out to his spot and gives his normal palaver. David sees it and he interprets all of Goliath's words as an affront to the living God everything David does is based upon the assumption that Goliath has offended God not God's not Goliath's offend, or, uh, Goliath's offended. or Goliath offended. Israel, or King Saul, or him, but but he, Goliath, is an offense to God. And he was pitting himself against God's army. As such, he was against the Lord. Well, when he inquires about the reward that would be paid, David does, uh, to the man who kills Goliath, takes him on, kills him, hopefully, uh, his brother Eliab hears it, and we read of Eliab's attitude In 1729, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, this is 28, 1728, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him. He burned with anger at him. Eliab is kind of a hothead. There are are two references to Eliab in the Bible that deal with this attitude. One is the anointing, where God specifically rejects him. The second one is right here. He burns with anger against David. And he says, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep? In the in the desert. I I know how conceited you are, and how wicked your heart is. You've come down to watch the battle. Would you look at verse cross and look at verse nineteen for just a second? As David is sent off, he's told by his father, Your brothers are down fighting. There had been no fight. I'm convinced that Eliab had monopolized the family conversation, family dinner table, by talking about deeds of valor that he had done. And, uh, but there have been no deeds of valor. There have been nothing. Eliab can't fake this. He, he's discovered that he's, uh, he's not a fighting. There have been no battles. So he lashes out at David. Why have you come down here? Well, I was sent. David doesn't say. By the way, I brought some food for you. Hey, you could have said thanks for that, buddy. Why have you come down here? Well, Dad sent me, and I brought you some food. You might be grateful. And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? You only had a few, and you probably weren't responsible for even with even those few. He kind of demeans shepherding, and he and he belittles. David's sense of responsibility. I know how conceited you are. You see it there at the beginning of the middle of uh, verse 19, or verse 28? I know how conceited you are. You know, it's interesting. Liars think everybody else is a liar. And proud people think other people are proud. And uh, uh, thieves think other people are thieves. When he mentions... I know how conceited you are. What he's really saying is, I'm really conceited by accusing you of being conceited and proud. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Well, come on, Eliab, give us a break, grow up. David is rejected by his older brother. And, uh, um, he uh, he handles it beautifully. He responds beautifully. He he doesn't get upset. He uh, he uh, just turns away and uh, continues to inquire about the royal rewards. Um, and so uh, he just he, he beats Mr. Rejection. He passes the rejection test. He's one of the beautiful people. He passes Mr. Rejection's exam, and uh, now we come to Mr. Doubt. How are we doing on time? Stop that thing back there, would you? Can somebody take the battery out of that, please? (laughs) We're going to be done shortly, I promise. Mr. Doubt, Mr. Doubt, Saul hears about David's offer to face Goliath. He's desperate. And so David, he calls David into his presence and he talks to him. And um, David uh, this is this is in verse, beginning in verse uh, let's see here. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's a fighting man from his youth. So he's he's doubting whether David can do this. He doesn't think he can. He just he just doesn't think it's going to happen. Mr. Spurgeon suggests Charles Spurgeon preached uh, in London in the eighteen sixties. Um, interesting young man. Pictures of his before they had public address systems. There would be a there, there would be a layer here and then another balcony and there be five six balconies and everybody. Uh, you know, four or five thousand people within a hundred feet of his voice—something like that. It was amazing. Anyway, Mr. Spurgeon suggests that David did some remembering and some reasoning. He remembered. David remembered that he had been tested before, and that when he was peacefully employed, he had met danger in the line of duty while in his proper place. Danger would not come because of sin on his part, but rather it came because he would not sin by being negligent. He remembered that bears and lions can fight different ways. He didn't. He didn't think this fiery trial should strike him as some strange thing because, well, it was a Philistine now; it was a bear and a lion before that. You know. He remembered that he'd risked his life before and faced the conflict alone. <clears throat> he, he told Saul that his primitive weapons were uh, were were unequal to the task, so God was going to have to do it. Uh, God had given the victory before, and he would do so again. David's tactics were simple. He wasn't going to consult a team of lion slayers or a Congress of uh, of uh, you know naturalists and as to what could be done and where the weak point of lion and bear are. You know, just, just trust God to make his his blows tell. Well, easily David could have said the opposite. He could have said the opposite. He could have reasoned that, well, yes, yes, the uh, uh, case of the Philistine. Could be parable of the lion and the bear but uh, you know uh, you know Eliab he hadn't been very kind to me and good King Saul they they really know what's best I I bear not push my luck there is no such thing as luck there's providence there's not luck David could have thought well you know I'm I'm kind of worn out I I, I shouldn't you know I'm hey I'm obligated to fight bears and lions maybe a dozen bears and lions but I'm you know this two legged guy you know no he's he's out of my league. He easily could have convinced himself that he was uh, not appropriate for them to take on Goliath. And so Saul says, well, okay, I'm convinced. You can you can have him. Verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him, bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword like the, over the tunic and tried to walk around, but he was not used to them. I mean, if you're going into a domain of professionals, I mean, you would be, Pathetically outclassed not to have the right gear, right? You gotta have the gear. I remember a young lady that I knew in Southern California, she said, Oh, I got everything I need to ski. And I said, Well, did you, what kind of boots did you get? Oh, I didn't get boots. Oh, Uh, what kind of skis did you get? Rosalind? Head? What kind of skis did you get? Oh, I didn't get skis. Well, she 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 was. She had the, the right dress, the right snow outfit, but she didn't have any skis, didn't have any didn't have any boots or poles. You know, oh, I got everything I need. Uh, you know, David doesn't want to come into the presence of the this huge giant of a man and be pathetically outclassed by not having the right gear. I mean, I mean, David's Saul's armor would have been superb armor. It would have been the best. It might help with the victory. It would have been terrible. If it had dropped into the Philistine hands, propaganda benefit coming to the Philistines if David was killed in Saul's armor. But David says, "You know, I I don't know this stuff. I can't. This is not me. Be you." I, I think it took a lot of courage for David to say, "No, I'm not going to use this. I, I I don't know this. I can't. This is not me. I can't do this." Do you remember the moment? When Samuel says to Eli, you called for I'm here. Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. You remember that moment? And then Eli realizes that God is talking to Samuel. Young Samuel, he was young. Go back and go to bed. And if he's, if the voice comes again, say, speak for your servant hears or something, something like that. And so the next morning, Eli says, now tell me everything God said. God's do so more, uh, may, may it be, to me, uh, what's the formula? May it be like uh, ever so bad if I don't, you don't tell me everything. What a moment for this boy who's probably 6 or 8 or 10, or 12, speaking to Eli and saying, God's going to judge your house. Man, you talk about a moment of coming of age. You talk about a moment when, when he had to buck up and be the father of Eli, who was eight times as old as he was. Well, this moment here, for David, as he says, I, I can't use this. That was a growing up moment. That was a moment when he had to, uh, it took a lot of self-confidence. It took a lot of poise, knowing who he was and who, what he was and what he wasn't. For him, say, I I can't go with this. You can't do this. Not me. I remember in seminary, we, there were some great preachers that came through and one of my favorite was Leon Wood. He was he just was a fabulous preacher, Bible biography. He would stand there at chapel and just uh, he just talk and hold his Bible, quote it, never read it. Some of us wanted to be like Leon Wood. Some of us like wanted to be like Warren Wiersbe. You know the name Warren Wiersbe? You know the name Warren? Oh, we, we he would come to Bible conference and he was a favorite. You know, so everyone wants to preach like Warren Wiersbe. I don't know how many made it. He just, Warren Wiersbe just kept hitting grand slams quietly, never, never yelled, never shouted, never got dramatic. Just, he, just, he just delivered the goods, you know? He just delivered the insight. So a lot of us wanted to preach like Leon Wood or Warren Wiersbe. But the really smart guys just kept on being what they'd always been. Just kept on developing their own unique presentation of truth. Be you. Don't try to be somebody else. Now, people can help us and we can improve so the you becomes a better you, but be you. God made you. He loves what he made. He's impressed with you. I have a friend who sang a song. I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got, everything I'm not, I'm yours, Lord. There's a lot of things we're not. Oh, to be content with who we are, at rest with what we are and what we're not, and leave others to God. David, put off the armor, can't go in these. And then he goes off to face Goliath. Well, those are the professors he had. Discipline, disappointment, distressful duty, rejection, and doubt. You and I have the same teachers. May God give us grace to respond and love Him and enjoy Him as life unfolds. Would you stand with me? Thank you. Okay, we've got one more.